0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which publishes loads of titles of interest to Dig listeners like you. One that you might find interesting is Social Revolution, Politics and the Welfare State in Iran by Kivan Harris. Political observers have long characterized the Islamic Republic of Iran as an ideologically rigid state with a narrow social base teetering on the edge of collapse. Harris convincingly demonstrates how they are wrong. Today, more Iranians are connected to welfare and social policy institutions than to any other form of state organization. In fact, Much of Iran's current political turbulence is the result of the success of these social welfare programs, which have created newly educated and mobilized social classes advocating for change. Social Revolution, Politics in the Welfare State in Iran, by Kivan Harris, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. America, we just don't win anymore. It's almost like we're a third world country. ISIS is laughing at us. China is laughing at us. Mexico is laughing at us. In fact, China invented global warming as some sort of trick to destroy our economy, and Mexico outsmarted our feckless leaders by conspiratorially sending us all the criminals. This, Donald Trump explained, is why he had to make America great again. The implication being that America, at least for a little bit, was kind of shit before. Just one nation among many others in a global battle for wealth and power that we have been losing. My guest is Stephen Wertheim, a lecturer in history at Burbeck University of London, specializing in U.S. foreign relations, who is writing a book on the birth of U.S. global supremacy in World War II. He has made the case that Trump has parted from a core piece of American ideology, the notion that America is exceptional, also known as American exceptionalism. A quick reminder before we get started, we are trying to hit 700 supporters on the Patreon.com website in total by year's end. So please hit pause. I'll be here when you get back. And go to patreon.com, that's patreo ncom com slash the dig, and make a contribution. If we hit that 700 donor mark by year's end, I promise I'll start reminding you to donate way less often. Thanks to everyone who's donated. We just hit the 420 mark last week, which was awesome. Okay, here's the show. Stephen Wertheim, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
0: What was the foreign policy that Trump ran and won on? And then what foreign policy has he governed from? Um, many initially, I think, interpreted him as an isolationist of sorts because of his criticism of NATO and the Iraq war. But he also, of course, said that the U.S. should have seized Iraq's oil and an office has engaged in this terrifying uh, war of wars with North Korea.
1: Indeed. So a lot's packed into there. I think that the foreign policy he ran on was simultaneously uh, militaristic and anti-interventionist, which was a strange needle to thread, but he seemed to pull it off. So what struck many mainstream foreign policy experts and commentators as so distinctive was his continued criticism of the war in Iraq, which no one was really talking about, was his threats to renegotiate NATO and renegotiate American alliances in East Asia. Uh, He didn't really say that he wanted to pull out completely, but he did make some noises that left out. So from that and from his stance on trade, uh, the main line, to the extent there was a coherent line against him during the election on foreign policy, was that he was an isolationist who stood foursquare against U.S. world leadership and the quote-unquote liberal international order. And I think that that line has pretty much fallen apart during his presidency, uh, because as I mentioned, he also promised, I mean, his attitude in the campaign seemed to be not just, I want to pull out, but Also, I want things from the world. I want to take back what's been taken from us. Uh, And that implied uh, a good deal of activism. And he never said that he was going to withdraw from alliances. He also painted a uh, litany of enemies that the United States faced all around the world, none of which suggested that he actually rejected the notion that the United States had global interests And responsibilities. So I think that's why it was a mistake to read him as somebody who was that much of an anti-interventionist. Now in office, uh, we've seen him use less the language of an aggrieved nation, except uh, perhaps in certain moments, like when he pulled out of the Paris climate accord. And it seems to be, you know, eight months in there's lots of time, uh, one imagines, though not necessarily, uh, to go in his presidency. And it looks like a pretty conventional foreign policy. I mean, it's really hard to argue that in any formal terms, he hasn't pulled out of NATO. To the contrary, uh, two months ago, he explicitly endorsed NATO and endorsed the collective security agreement. He hasn't backed off from American uh, responsibilities in Asia, and he has not withdrawn, but rather escalated all across the Middle East, uh, loosening the rules of engagement for the military.
0: You've written that perhaps Trump's most significant break with American foreign policy tradition is that he, you write, does not speak the language of American exceptionalism. What is American exceptionalism? Why do certain people care so passionately about it? And how does Trump, if he still does, deviate from that norm?
1: Yeah, so I think he still does, actually, which is interesting, given what I have just said, which is that I think his foreign policy has shaped up to be more conventional than not. So during the campaign uh, and still in office, Trump presented the United States not like uh, American presidents typically do, not as The country that uh, is at the vanguard of the world's history, that is a model for all others, to which all others are somehow historically retrograde. That's a shorthand for um, what American exceptionalism is usually defined to be. And it goes all the way back to John Winthrop in uh, 1630, who proclaimed that the United States, well, not the United States at that time, but the Massachusetts Bay Colony of which he was the governor. Would be as a city upon a hill," he said. The, "The eyes of the whole world are upon us." That got written into the national DNA of the United States after the Revolution.
0: And uh, at the time, and, this is sort of yeah. At the time, this is sort of imbued with um, millenarian Protestant settler colonialist religious ideas, right?
1: It is uh, because the Puritans, in particular, saw the New World. As an exodus and a sharp break from England. There were other options available at that time. And uh, pretty soon, uh, there were others like Anglicans in Virginia who were maybe more influential in the colonies uh, by the end of the 17th century who saw the United States as an extension of England. But when the uh, rebellion against the British came about, there needed to be some distinctive national identity. Uh, and so the Winthrop version got secularized and nationalized. And it's been a feature of American foreign policy discourse ever since. It's usually a frame in which competing factions pitch whatever they want to do. So it's equally exceptionalist to say, we should intervene and take these colonies because the United States uh, can uplift people who are retrograde.
0: The and sort that's of Teddy model.
1: Exactly, uh, and to go to that moment exactly, they were the anti-imperialist pitch in in 1898 was no, we should be a model. Yes, our democracy is inspiring to others, but we shouldn't implant it at the force of a gun. That's contrary to our traditions. So it's a frame rather than anything that uh, determines exactly what the United States ought to do. And so what's really interesting then is the way Donald Trump seems to. Stand outside of that frame. And that's really distinctive. And I think that it's cut, it, it, it means that the virulent reaction against him by many in the national security community, I think, comes down not just to what he's promised to do in terms of policy, and certainly not to what he's done in terms of policy, but it strikes them as antithetical to America's national identity
0: it it's remarkable to see people these foreign policy mandarins so freaked out about Trump, not that one shouldn't be freaked out about Trump, but this is the same group of people who've had so little curiosity about reckoning with their own decade and a half destructive foreign policy failure um meaning the war on terror um, and the fact that it was this very lack of reckoning that helped make Trump a reality.
1: I think that's right, yeah and you know, naive me, I thought that after Trump was elected, it would mean that if if only because they wanted to protect their own status and protect the status quo, foreign policy experts would have to say, well, wait a minute. We, in the strongest possible terms, said in the election, this guy is unfit to be commander in chief. Uh, it doesn't get any harsher than that and now he was elected people did not heed our warnings they did not take our argument to be decisive enough now maybe they voted for him mainly for other reasons but at the very least you know we know that voters didn't find him so offensive uh, as a as a commander in chief and a formulator of foreign policy as to not vote for him uh, but it seems as though Trump is also provided them with a convenient way to avoid looking inward and ask why American foreign policy provoked such discontent before Trump and why Trump was able to seize uh, on those failures as president. I mean, it was a remarkable thing that he kept talking about the notion that he had opposed the Iraq war from the beginning and it destabilized the Middle East and it was maybe the worst where he says everything is the worst decision in American history, but it was the worst decision in American history. Um, it was quite something to see him think that at least that that was going to be a strong line for him. And he used that line in every uh, all, all three of the presidential debates with, with Hillary Clinton. So it, it still resonated.
0: And it was by no means an anti-imperialist critique, um, but he's able to make this sort of Pragmatic um, criticism of the and, and uh, of the invasion of Iraq because he's, as you said, stepped outside of this frame um, very idiosyncratically of American exceptionalism. Um, right. I want to read from something that you you wrote on it. You, you wrote that Trump's is a normal nationalism, extreme but not exceptional. Trump's America enters the international arena in order to square off against comparable competitors each equally capable of becoming great. What will become of American foreign policy when greatness, no longer bestowed, must be seized? I think that's a really important argument. Um, Even though Trump is so extremely nationalistic, um, he also compares the U.S. to a third world country. And make America great again, of course, implies not only that America is currently not great, but also that greatness is contingent and specifically contingent on the great game of winning against other powers and not something that is inherent to the American project.
1: That's right. And he actually uh, said all this, basically, not quite uh, as articulately as, as you put it. But uh, two months before he ran for president, he spoke uh, in front of a group of Tea Partiers in Houston And he was asked, you know, what what can we do to restore American exceptionalism? The interviewer clearly thought that Trump was going to say, well, Obama's done away with American exceptionalism, and so I'm going to bring it back. And Trump said, I don't like the term. I've never liked it. Uh, First of all, it's insulting to others, (laughs) which is interesting (laughs) for Donald Trump to think that, you know, others have feelings that may be hurt (laughs) by language. (laughs) <laughs> and, but he was, you know, he was absolutely right. He was saying, what, how do you think it it, it feels to uh, Germans or others to hear, you know, basically we're superior to you. Uh, but he said, I think this is the more important uh, point. He said it, it uh, also isn't true that others were eating our lunch, in his words. The United States was retrograde, basically. And now, and needed to be, it was being exploited, and needed to be catch, and needed to catch up with the rest of the world. Uh, so he said, you know, maybe, maybe we'll have a chance to make America exceptional again. So what he's doing here in the space of this little answer is rejecting the concept and appropriating the term by redefining it and saying, well, all right, if you really want to talk about American exceptionalism, what I think it is is Countries start out identical in competition for a fixed pot of material resources. And that's kind of refreshing insofar as it dispenses with the inherent hierarchy that American exceptionalism introduces. If you think America is exceptional, your starting point is we're up here and everyone else is is down there. He dispenses with that. And so that's intriguing. But then he replaces it with a form of nationalism that seems to be inherently conflictual.
0: Yeah, because if we have to earn our exceptional status as a country, then that could justify some militarism that's at least as extreme as what's happened before. Because he seems to think that uh, yep. American exceptionalism is is dangerous in that it lures Americans into these bad habits in a false kind of lazy sense of security that has led to our decline as a nation because we just assume we're exceptional and that we don't have to work for it. And Trump working for it is a scary idea.
1: Yes it is. And his critiques, I mean, you know, again taken a little further with a little more polish than Trump himself would would give it. His critique seems to be that under the rubric of exceptionalism, American leaders have accepted mutual gains among allies when really we're losing out. At least we're losing out relatively. And, you know, a critique can be made along those lines of how the United States acted in the Cold War when it boosted the economies of uh, Germany and Japan in particular.
2: And Um, Trump was a critic of that
1: at the time. He was, yeah, in the 1980s. This is one of his oldest political ideas. So, you know, that's not to say that once in office, he is taking this as a blueprint for everything he's doing and that any of these ideas are easy to implement. As I say, so far, I don't think we've seen a whole lot of it, but we need to understand what what his line has been for multiple decades before ascending improbably to the presidency. And that at least helps make sense of um, the either the actions he takes or the kind of transformation that occurs when the rubber hits hits the road.
0: When did American exceptionalism um, come to be known by the term American exceptionalism? And has it long been a term that ordinary people would have used or recognized?
1: Yeah, this is, uh, for the most part, a really recent story, which is interesting. Uh, So there's one answer to the question actually uh, points to Stalin, who uh, reputedly uh, was upset with Debates in which the United States was treated as exceptional, meaning an exception from the norm, and uh, said, you know, what's with this American exceptionalism? And that's how some social scientists, it seems, at least according to the potted history, uh, it, it got into some of the U.S. discussion. <laughs> um, now, but I think the more pertinent – but that's also a, maybe a different form of exceptionalism where the United States is – is treated as a kind of invitation for scientific inquiry rather than a frame for American national identity. Uh, so the national identity issue, the, the answer is re- recent. Uh, or I, I think that Barack Obama might have been the first American president to uh, use the term exceptionalism well in office. He certainly used it, much, much more than any other president. So it's only uh, a little bit in reaction to George W. Bush's tenure, and then especially in reaction to Barack Obama, that the term exceptionalism has come into widespread popular use, especially on the political right. And it occurs to me that uh, this may have something to do with Donald Trump's rejection of American exceptionalism, that having turned exceptionalism into a kind of talking point, having named it, having politicized it, that may have opened the door to it being contested and rejected.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the controversies surrounding Obama and American exceptionalism. Um, yeah. Just as far as I can remember it, that's the first time I started hearing the term right a lot in the news. Um, though, though, just as an aside, e- even though it's a more a more recent term dating back maybe to Stalin, it is something that, at least going back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was it, it was if not called that, still this kind of ideological premise that people that people still subscribe to, right? Right. Um. So so Obama, um, it all starts at an April two thousand nine press conference. When he's asked about multilateral institutions um, like the G20 summit and NATO, and he said, I
1: believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism.
0: So it was him at that point who chose to use this language, perhaps because of his scholarly background, Um, But the sort of relativism there drove people nuts. Sean Hannity went after him. Mitt Romney in the election um, in 2012 uh, did as well. Um, And the result was that Obama talked about American exceptionalism constantly from then on out um, and without the relativism that he initially expressed. Um, He said uh, one time, I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. You know, like, thou, yeah. thou doth protest too much. Um, what, what do you think was going on there? I mean, it seems to me that, that the whole episode reflected a few things. Um, one, as you suggest, that American exceptionalism was, had gone into a crisis during the Bush years um, in the war, with the war on terror. And then two, I think Obama's perceived foreignness, his, his otherness, really yep. exacerbated. At all.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I mean, then the irony, just to add to your question and not at all answer them in an intelligent way, the irony is that that the political right becomes attracted to a genuine non exceptionalist in in Donald Trump. So what's going on there? You know, uh, at the very least, it was a way of articulating on the right. How a a discomfort with American identity, a way of saying that Barack Obama—and actually, you know, a a less directly racist way of saying it than say birther charges—a way of saying Barack Obama is somehow not American. He's not American because of what he believes, and he gave him, you know, he he gave him an opening when he relativized uh, exceptionalism in 2009 and decided never to make that mistake again. So, you know, maybe we should not read into the term too much. And indeed, as you've suggested, separate the concept, which goes way back from the term and the specific politics that have that have been generated around the term, which maybe uh, don't have so much to do with people's confidence in Uh, American exceptionalism at the very time when they started to be using the term in a popular way. In fact, uh, there have been some polls uh, polling the American public on a belief in exceptionalism. There's a Pew poll from uh, 2011 and another one in 2014, which shows a declining belief uh, in, I think the question was, does the United States stand above all other nations? Not entirely sure what that means, but it's taken as a proxy for American exceptionalism, and is a ten percent drop uh, in the number of Americans, and even more among Republicans, uh, from 2010 to 2014. So even as the term exploded into popular usage, uh, belief in the term, or what the what the term uh, is taken to stand for, seemed to decline.
0: One interesting and disturbing aspect of this this worldview that I think people often miss is that his anti-immigrant politics are related to this idea that the U.S. is being outsmarted by wily foreign powers, who he actually kind of yeah. you know he has like a grudging respect for for these countries for being smarter than us and eating our lunch. That's right. Um, he just wants to to fight back. Um, Most people remember, of course, that he called Mexican immigrants criminals and rapists. Um, I mean, that really became one of the most infamous things he ever said. But the full context of what he said was actually much more weird than that. Um, What he said was the Mexican government is forcing their most unwanted people into the United States, meaning that he actually believes that Mexican migration is the result of a conspiracy on the part of the Mexican government to offload criminals to the United States.
1: Yes, I'm really curious to know if he got that from anywhere, from what reach of the internet, from what right-wing talk show, or did he just come up with it? Uh, I haven't seen anyone trace that in particular.
0: I think it it echoes um, long-standing right-wing ideas around the the reconquista um, of Mm -hmm. uh, Mexican immigration being a conspiracy to take back uh, what was seized um, during the Mexican-American War, um, but I think that that, yeah. that he really re- reworked it into into this into this um, into this framework that you've that you've written about.
1: I think that's right. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that uh, I mean, what it makes me think of is that there is a standing line that's similar to this in 20th century American history, but usually has to do with totalitarian powers. So we saw this about the Axis, the Nazis in particular during World War II, and in the lead up to it, and about the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War, which was there's this kind of fear that the United States is a democracy. It may There may be certain weaknesses inherent in democracy, and totalitarian powers may be vicious, but on the other hand, there's a certain amount of respect one wants to accord them. Because they have their act together, they can act in a coordinated fashion, they have a grand strategy, maybe we don't. So it's revealing. I I think so much of the transformation of American politics recently can be explained in part by the fact that totalitarianism has disappeared from our landscape, our global landscape, as a specter. I think it took some time. It, it disappeared, of course, in fact, if you want to call the Soviet Union of the late 80s totalitarian, when the Soviet empire collapsed. But then the specter of totalitarianism, I think, continued for some time. And, and many who prosecuted the war on or dreamed up the war on terror, uh, many neoconservatives around George W. Bush, thought, you know, explicitly thought of the terrorist enemy as a new a new Cold War enemy, Islamofascism. It was a kind of variant of totalitarianism. So they still kind of tried that to gave that that
0: model. That gave this sort of post-Cold War lack of purpose in, in U.S. foreign policy, that gave it this renewed focus.
1: Yes. And I think that now we've really... Uh, on the right, we've we've seen a different kind of politics that does not fear totalitarianism or its or its variant, and so we have the same kinds of conspiracy theories from the mouth of Donald Trump being arrayed against various non-white powers and peoples, and, and Mexico was his main target for that.
0: Hey, this is Dan Denver calling into my own show to let you know that fellow travelers and other high-level donors on Patreon can now not only uh, call in questions to guests, but call in comments that will be played at the end of the show like this one. Uh, so please go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a donation and we love hearing from listeners so call in
2: hello uh, my name is sean wise Uh, i'm a 29 year old uh, and i'm about to begin my senior year of undergraduate study at uc davis Um, i major in political science and in fact i it is saturday september 16th i have just walked out of taking my first lsat so wish me luck anyway I've been listening for a while, uh, but I just started donating through Patreon recently and I wanted to give a positive rating on, like, most or all of the shows that I've heard. Um, but in particular, the recent, um, episode that you did, The Dig, Houston, Segregated Disaster, um, it may have been long, but it was worth it. Uh, the discussion of rebranding Houston from a southern suede city to, like, a southwestern fun rodeo town, um, was as informative as it was interesting, uh, Even more so was the discussion of the Camp Logan riots. I had never heard of them. I I believe it's truly a piece of history that should be examined further. Um, So thanks for all that you do. Keep up the good work. And once again, my name is Sean Wise. Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: In terms of the the Bush administration and the neocons, um, you've noted that they resurrected exceptionalism at its most messianic, launching a war on terror, In the name of an international freedom agenda and democracy promotion, to what extent, um, to the extent that exceptionalism was was caught up in in that war on terror that they launched, do you think that 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 war on terror's crash and burn into a permanent quagmire was what ultimately did the ideology so much damage and sort of opened up room for for Trump and his idiosyncratic non-exceptionalist doctrine?
1: One thing that struck me during the campaign was how much Trump leaned on his alleged opposition to the war in Iraq as an answer to why American voters could trust him on matters of national security. I think that was really revealing. And I think it he sort of put his finger on his small finger, whatever, on uh something that the established exactly what foreign policy Uh, people on both sides of the aisle had avoided doing, which was reckoning with the utter failure of the Iraq war and the war on terror. He at least showed that he, even if he had no good prescription, he at least showed that he recognized the problem. And here I think, uh, unfortunately, we have to blame Barack Obama as well as uh, George W. Bush and the people around him. Uh, Because the Obama administration, the attitude of the Obama administration toward the war in Iraq was, uh, let's leave aside even the policy. The attitude was, let's turn the page. Let's just uh, sweep this under the rug and return to a nice, sane foreign policy where we act prudently. And that also meant no accountability for the people who had launched an illegal and aggressive war um and it actually suggested that there was nothing to prevent the united states from doing the same kind of thing in the first place in in the uh future after the vietnam war for example and after world war 1 two wars that were in retrospect deemed to be failures uh there was at least uh, a great deal of um you know literary and political output Uh, about what had gone wrong, what can be done to change so that the same kinds of things don't happen again. I think uh, it really interests me how the country has dealt with the Iraq war in particular, which is now viewed uh, to a striking degree as a mistake. And yet it's not really clear why most Americans think it's a mistake. And there's been very little overt discussion of, well, what exactly went wrong and what are the larger implications for American foreign policy? Now, I don't think Trump advances this discussion one bit, but it's notable that it just suddenly erupted during the primaries and during the campaign from him.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is just this point has been made on past shows, but the war on terror has just made American perverted and made American politics so weird on so many levels. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah, fast forwarding uh, to back to today, Trump has also embraced this idea of Western civilization. And I wonder how that fits into the sort of ideology, the non exceptionalist ideology he campaigned on in, in a visit to Poland earlier this year, he gave a speech on the subject.
1: The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the
0: courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? Trump believes in the West, obviously, But it seems not in Western exceptionalism. As with America, he believes that the West has to earn its place at the top of the pack. Is that right?
1: I would say so. Although in that speech, he did act as the leader of the West and at least implicitly position the United States that way. And to that extent, it does seem to contradict his non-exceptionalist worldview. That he he brought to the to the campaign, so there's a little bit of a shift in there. But I think, by and large, the framework of Western civilization does give him. Uh, I don't want to overstate the cleverness of of the administration, but it's a pretty clever way of squaring the circle between this aggrieved nationalism of the campaign that seems to be shared by the Bannonite base of the party, with something that sounds acceptable to the foreign policy establishment. Because Western civilization or civilization can sound like uh, a kind of rooted, non-universalistic identity. Well, it also is quite expansive. I mean, what is the West? Where does it end? Could Russia be part of the West? Actually, the right wing now thinks that it is. Uh, so it uh, it allows for any number of moves to be made in its name. Uh, so what I tried to do in the piece that you alluded to was to note that there's basically been two different frames in which uh, Trump has pitched his foreign policy, and this started in the campaign. And everybody knows about America First, um, but then there was something in the background of his major foreign policy addresses during the campaign. And that was this notion of Western civilization. And I think uh, once in office, of course, he started with this strident America First inaugural address. Uh, and at the six-month point, he gives a big speech in Warsaw that's all about Western civilization. And he had started even before then to, to use that kind of language more and more when he went to the Saudi trip. Although I think he would sort of drop the Western part of that, which is one of the advantages of this very slippery framework. <laughs> um, but that's a framework that allows him to uh, explain why we are settling down with certain allies rather than uh, mistrusting them. So, you know, it, it maybe allows for a dash of exceptionalism. And that's part of the reason why the establishment uh, received his Warsaw speech. Pretty well, even if they didn't like the messenger. But you know, look, uh, he may not, uh, and his administration may not recognize that this uh, pitch could uh, be successful for him. I don't want to give many ideas, but uh, we'll have to see if he has any consistency in, in in using this framework. But it is definitely something that animates the base. I mean, if you read Breitbart uh, even a little bit, you will see. Uh, concerns about articulated, not just in terms of American nationalism, but also in terms of the West. and the, So I think it's really important to understand how they're viewing this kind of politics.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's either really, as you suggested, is either really clever or just accidentally really effective on, on Trump's part, because this whole notion of civilizational conflict squares the circle by Speaking to both the Bannonite and white nationalist right, um, Trump used the exact words that the West, that the West shared bonds of culture, faith, and yeah. tradition, which is just really utterly far right blood and soil language. Um, while also um, speaking in this civilizational con conflict kind of framework, um, gives a nod to to the NATO alliance, which. Um, the foreign policy establishment hawks are so concerned about. So he can simultaneously please right. them both with uh, this kind of so language. So let's
1: hope that he doesn't uh, continue to use this language, but uh, we'll see. But, you know, he also uses it implicitly and has used it for a long time to define enemies like the quote unquote lawless savages of ISIS. And he connects this language with immigrants too. So th- it allows him to in part, it allows him to you know contradict part of the appeal of America first, which might be that the United States should act militarily only if there's a direct kind of interest well, that's very different if it's a matter of keeping down lawless savages, which is more of a kind of imperial imaginary that he summons there, and it also has implications for um for immigration and, and domestic policy. It's a, it's a new set of others that, that he's coming up with.
0: Yeah, you wrote, um, I believe, with Samuel Moyne, that after Obama took office, that opposition to the Iraq War had broadened but not deepened, which I thought was really interesting. Um, like the only lessons learned about the Iraq War and the war on terror after all of these years of fighting it were basically technocratic ones. Um and that everything was going to be all right now that the cowboy was out of the Oval Office and the constitutional law professor, the cool-headed constitutional right. law professor, was in charge.
1: Right. And of course, he wasn't, unless he was going to become a dictator himself, he was not going to be in charge forever. Let's just start there. And uh, we also shouldn't trust him with uh, unconditional power to make war and peace. Uh, so I think that that, is a failure that we have to continue to grapple with. Now, it's possible that we'll see a renewed politics, a long-dormant politics of asserting congressional prerogative on foreign policy uh, against the executive. That is one—
0: Like what happened after Vietnam?
1: It happened uh, after Vietnam. Um, it also happened after World War I. Uh, particularly in the 1930s as a new war loomed. Uh, But uh, so far we've seen a little bit of that, but it's been uh, mainly uh, evident in uh, making sure that uh, policy toward Russia is a tough one, that there's no rapprochement with Russia and Trump has been forced to go along. So uh, nevertheless, I I think it is possible that we'll see that reaction to Trump which would involve a, a coalition of, of the right and the left.
0: In terms of a reinvigorated anti-war movement in the United States? Because what's remarkable is that the movement was so big in the early years and just utterly collapsed around the mid-2000s and has been nowhere to be seen since. I mean, even in you know Bernie Sanders' fairly left-wing campaign against Hillary Clinton, who criticized just about everything about the democratic establishment I mean, he did touch on foreign policy sometimes but it was really not that often
1: i completely agree with you um i think it's not clear right now what a left foreign policy looks like um so i don't expect a popular movement uh and a popular anti-war movement to spring up in reaction to trump unless actions trump takes prove extremely costly but uh, I do think it's it's possible and it should probably be articulated as a goal uh, that with a, somebody who is widely regarded as a, not very good decision-maker, not necessarily a stable person uh, in the Oval Office, that at the very least some of the existing uh, constitutional powers of Congress with respect to foreign policy could be reasserted. I think that could at least be a minimal goal, even if it's Uh, not necessarily a substitute for a more robust anti-war politics.
0: Do you think a more robust, either a more robust anti-war politics or even more modestly increased congressional oversight is compatible with the current liberal foreign policy focus, which seems to be entirely consumed by the question of Russian influence? I mean, it doesn't have to be said that obviously Russia, um, like many great powers, has lots of malign influence throughout the world but but really just spending an evening watching MSNBC, which I don't <laughs> ever do, um it makes it just patently painfully clear that the the mainstream liberal worldview at least has been entirely colonized by terror over over Putin and Russia.
1: Sure, no, I, I think that's right. I mean maybe maybe Mueller can wrap this up and he can be impeached or not impeached, and we can move on. I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. But I, what I what I would just say is that if you're looking for a place to start uh, in these circumstances, these very limited circumstances uh, that we see before us, uh, suggesting that uh, there might be some greater congressional input in foreign policy, which has ample precedence, seems like a place to start. And then I think we have to await change circumstances.
0: Before we get any further, um, I want to address an orange-hued elephant in the room. You've been criticized for attempting to even discern a Trump doctrine, given that it's Donald Trump that we're talking about. (laughs) What did critics take issue with, and what was your response?
1: Yeah, I think that—so there were multiple things. Some critics— Felt that there was no rhyme or reason to what Donald Trump does. Uh, So it just had to be wrong for him to have a doctrine which implies some degree of coherence. I think others felt as though I was normalizing Trump by treating him like any other president, at least insofar as I was saying, look, maybe there's some kind of emerging doctrine there, uh, or they felt that to, to invest a president with a doctrine conferred some positive virtue onto them. Uh, So with respect to the latter, I don't think it does. Uh, And I don't think it should be assumed that a doctorate is necessarily a good thing. Um, And with respect to the former, uh, I I I guess what I take a doctrine to be is – um, some kind of overarching principle in which an administration pitches its, its foreign policy. And uh, that's not to say that you can explain every action that it takes uh, through that doctrine. And uh, uh, I certainly wouldn't. And as I've noted, one of the distinctive aspects of doctrines like this or conceptual frameworks, including Western civilization, is that it allows a lot of leeway for the president to take any number of actions in its name and still make it sound like something profound is happening that has a certain coherence. So it was in that spirit that I, that I approached the question of whether there's a Trump doctrine. But I do think we have to pay attention. I mean, I think we will gain insight into what's going on uh, by paying attention to the way the Trump administration tries to work out what it's doing in the world. Um, if for no other reason, even if it's just a cover, for the actions it's taken, it is inspiring uh, a uh, reaction both at home and abroad, uh, and that reaction matters. And you know, we've talked about the way that I think many mainstream foreign policy experts and commentators have reacted—not so much to the policies Trump has taken, but to the way he talks about America in the world. So some. Uh, some dance is going on about American national identity and how the United States comes to fashion a place for itself in the world. And uh, that that's a question that I was trying to uh, bring attention to.
0: Yeah. And, and I think that's precisely why you could make the case to your critics that the argument that this is not normal, whether we're talking about foreign policy or immigration policy or a number of other areas is really quite a reactionary way to interpret Trump um, in the way that it normalizes and provides justification for the status quo ante, which was not a very pleasant one here or abroad.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost a, literally a conservative reaction, which is to say, we need to conserve <laughs> yeah, normality uh, from this thing that we're saying is abnormal. Uh, on its face, that's just about the most conservative move one could make. Um, But it does obscure lines of continuity between Trump and all previous foreign policy and completely uh, uh, obliterates any opportunity to address the ills of uh, foreign policy that uh, obviously Trump was able to capitalize on. So somehow pre-Trump normality gave us Trump. So it's just not going to uh, get us to where we need to be to uh, to paper over that.
0: Another aspect of American exceptionalism, obviously we've been talking about foreign policy, but I think there's really a domestic corollary or domestic side to this as well, which holds that America and the American model is the greatest and cannot be negatively compared to anything else. And I think another sign of the breakdown of um if not the term american exceptionalism but what that refers to this idea that everyone you know uh believes in it even if they don't wouldn't couldn't quite articulate it because it's such a hegemonic basic premise of how americans have long thought about the world that this that this that this is another example of this breaking down that's that's powerful and maybe promising after all the depressing stuff we've talked about is that during the campaign bernie Sanders. Negatively compared the U.S. to Denmark, for example. Yes. Um, and said, and and that would have been utter heresy before, and he got away with it totally.
1: There's only a few times in American history where we've seen just a little bit of opening where you can start to make international comparisons of the kind that Sanders made. The one was the Progressive Era at the turn of the 20th century. We may be entering an era like that now, and I think if we see, you know, maybe maybe this decline of exceptionalism is just mostly a a Trumpian characteristic. But if we look back in 20 years and we say, actually, this is a period where there was a broad-based decline in American exceptionalism and it stopped becoming a staple of American political discourse and became much more contested, then I think we will say that it's happening at least as much because of domestic pressures as international ones, because Americans do not feel like the country's moving forward and in the quote-unquote right direction at home. Um, And one of the things that perhaps sustained exceptionalism as long as it did was the sense that the United States was moving forward, that its power was constantly growing, um, and that Allows one to say, okay, from this position of prosperity uh, and plentitude, we can be generous with with allies in the world and accept their uh, their gains as long as we're gaining too. And it may be that we're seeing a turn to a more zero sum approach in uh, our domestic political economy as, as well as foreign policy. The decline of American exceptionalism has It's been long prophesied and has never actually happened, so I'm not going to predict, but I think if it does happen, those will probably be uh, the reasons.
0: If American exceptionalism is breaking down, it provides opportunities and and poses a lot of threats. The the opportunities, it seems, are to, both in terms of domestic policy and foreign policy, break from... The oligarchic militarism that has governed this country for so long. Um, but the real danger it seems, the more Trumpian Bannonite vision, is that the us has to sort of, on the international stage, ruthlessly and violently prove its its dominance. And domestically, the real danger seems to be the far-right belief. That what's making America so unexceptional, and that what's weakening America so much, is the fact that the the polity, the the demos, the 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 constituency of people that that get to choose who who governs a democracy, is being fundamentally corrupted by becoming majority non-white, um, and it seems like there are, as in so many things, just a huge. Fork in the road here, with 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 very different sort of potential yeah. outcomes if American exceptionalism is breaking <clears> down.
1: <throat> I think you've put that extremely well. I think that we've seen the right get out in front in terms of pioneering a new kind of politics, and the left has to decide what its response will be. So far, the response of the left or the the non-right has been. America is already great and that applied to both international and domestic politics. And, you know, even the, the main line on the politics of immigration by democratic politicians is, you know, what's made America so great over so many years are the contributions from immigrants. Okay. But that doesn't, you know, if we are truly moving to a place uh, where, People don't feel like the country is in a great state. That then one needs a different kind of appeal about how we badly need contributions from immigrants. Um, so I think it's an opportunity for the left, and I think you know we've in the Sanders campaign we've seen a lot more uh, uh, of a start made with respect to domestic policy. But as you mentioned. On foreign policy, I think it's a big question mark right now. And, you know, we seem to be lacking, I I think for the last 20 years, we've been in a historically unprecedented, uh, narrow kind of debate on foreign policy. America's, there used to be much wider debates about America's role in the world. And right now, that's where we are. And I don't think we're making much progress. Um, And maybe there's a reason for that. Particularly on the left, maybe right now, you know, in order to craft a kind of positive rather than negative foreign policy, one needs uh, partners abroad with whom one can make uh, deals on trade and international institutions and so forth. And maybe right now, those partners don't quite exist. And so, when the opportunity arises, there will be a more robust. Uh, kind of left-wing politics that's <clears throat> not just uh, about restraining American power, but has a more positive vision.
0: And one of the, the great ironies of all of this, I think, is that the the narrowing of the debate and the horizon of possibility in terms of foreign policy is, to such a great extent, the product of the war on terror having fucked up the world so much that we are left with a situation where there really aren't great options, they're just better or worse ones. And that really strengthens the, the militarists hand to maintain the status quo that's been happening from Bush through Obama and now with Trump.
1: You're right that the war on terror has seemed to impose uh, a limitation on the possible positions one could plausibly take. but. There have been circumstances not unlike this one before, like after the United States took the Philippines from Spain in 1898 and uh, embarked on a very long and bloody pacification campaign that never fully really died down. And yet uh, we see then uh, one of the most robust periods of American debate about world order and America's role in the world during World War One, um, before it and after it. So I think there's a lot involved. I think part of the issue is a set of foreign policy experts that are pretty cloistered um, in the Acela corridor and pretty homogenous in their thinking and disconnected from popular politics. And I thought that Trump's success might have sparked some desire to at least widen the debate on foreign policy, because I think the alternative is that what we'll get for a foreign policy that doesn't actually command a high degree or a, a deep well of legitimacy Among the public, we'll see eruptions like Trump. We'll see anti-system candidates come out and propose something that seems new and dangerous. Again, in this moment uh, where there's not much promising in terms of foreign policy for the left to do, I think one thing that's worth doing is building up expertise that uh, does not share the assumptions of the liberal interventionist center, uh, not to say the right, uh, and promotes a more democratic foreign policy if only by presenting some well-constructed options. So one thing we can do right now is to try to build uh, expertise among people who think differently outside the Beltway consensus on foreign policy. Uh, And that will, I think, provide a really valuable service. Uh, for the future, uh, it will allow <clears throat> uh, people to be presented with a variety of views. And it also means that if there are candidates that uh, take up those leads in the future, they'll have experts rather than have to completely make it up and hire their son-in-law, like the current occupant of the White
0: House. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for um, doing this deep Uh, and messy dissection of American conventional wisdom. Uh, Stephen Wertheim, thanks so much.
1: Deep and messy, I'll take it. Thanks for having me.
0: Stephen Wertheim is a lecturer in history at Burbeck University of London, specializing in U.S. foreign relations. And he's writing a book on the birth of U.S. global supremacy in World War II. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As an eavesdropper once overheard Marx remarking, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. At this point, thanks to your generous support twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a review. They do help. So does spreading the word to your friends, family, and whoever else. Please make propaganda for us. And also, find us on Patreon.com slash and make a monthly contribution. We appreciate it, and we need it to keep this thing going.